something I love that we do that I didn't realize we did that's like so shady and perfect is that we don't have our email address anywhere online. We only have it in the audio of our <laughs> podcast. So the only people who can email us are people who actually listen. And I love that. <laughs> that's great. That just uh, revealed a lot about our site. Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we've prepared especially for them. I'm Luther Hughes. I'm Gabrielle Bates. And I'm Duji Taha. This week, we're talking with Tommy Blount via Zoom about color, order, and desire. Our for this episode is Pellegrino with Lime. Simple, effervescent, no hangover. Tommy Blount grew up in Detroit, Michigan. He earned an MFA from Warren Wilson College, and he is the author of the poetry collection Fantasia for the Man in Blue, which was, among many other awards, named as a finalist for the National Book Award, as well as the chapbook What Are We Not For? Blount has been awarded scholarships and fellowships from the Breadloaf Writers Conference, Kaveh Kanem, and Kresge Arts. He lives in Novi, Michigan. But before we go chat with Tommy, a question from one of our listeners. Workshop Woody writes, Workshop intimidates me because I'm never sure where to draw the line between what I should be listening to and what I shouldn't. How open should I be when being exposed to the craft ideas of others versus finding ways to stay true to my own self? How do you all do that dance of staying rooted to self versus being open to the influence of other poets? especially those in authority roles like teachers. So I guess I'll start personally. Okay, one, to be very, very transparent and honest, I don't, I don't love a workshop. Um, I never have, that's a lot. I probably loved it like at one point in time. Um, but for me, like workshop has always been difficult um, when receiving feedback uh, because a lot of the times I feel like people don't know how to critique my work in a workshop. Um, I've never been in a workshop where I was blown away by suggestions because um, again I think people have trouble um, constructively criticizing my work in a way that's beneficial for the growth of the poem. Um, and so a lot of the times um, I take things with, grain, with a grain of salt. Um, I remind myself that I am also a reader of my own poem. Um, I let myself know that I am the author of my poem and whatever I say can go for the poem. Um, but I do take the teacher's critiques very, very um, seriously. Um, I take their, especially in an MFA workshop because you're going there to study under specific teachers. And so um, I take their critiques um, to heart. Um, I might not always take them to the page, but I listen to what they're saying. Because um, most likely a good workshop teacher is going to 
um, open up a different layer of thinking for the poem for you. Not necessarily too much of actual like granular edits. It's more sort of thinking of the poem and how to approach the poem differently from a different angle. And I think those workshop teachers are the best teachers because I can look at the poem again and think, okay, they said the beginning of this poem was doing such and such. I don't want that to happen. So how can I take what they said, some of those critiques and like change it into what I wanted to happen? Um, so that's kind of what I think about, I don't know, staying rooted in the cell versus critique. I think it just depends on what you're thinking of for the poem um, and where you want the poem to go. Um, a good workshop is going to tell you how they're reading it versus what needs to be fixed. Um, so. I don't think I have an answer for this question because it's a question I still am very much wrestling with myself, but I, I can share my journey uh, when it comes to workshops and different ways of going about negotiating feedback. When I first started taking workshops and when I was like a 22 year old in my grad school program, it was really important to me to be extremely porous. I went into that process with like the most humility I could possibly have pretty much to a fault, I think. Like any feedback I got, I would at least try it out. Um, like even if it, you know, felt totally wrong to me. If anyone in any position of authority was like, I think you should cut this line or put this in tercets and flip the ending to the beginning, whatever they said, I did it. Just like no questions asked. And I don't think that's necessarily healthy, I think, but I did learn a lot from doing that. And I think being willing to try anything, especially at like an early stage when you're very much just learning, like I don't think that's necessarily a bad way to go. What I think is bad about it is that it didn't encourage me to develop a sense of authority around my own work. And it didn't force me to articulate my vision for my work. I was just accepting anyone else's vision for it. Um, and I think that uh, stunted my growth in some ways. So I've been enjoying slowly, gradually learning more about how to articulate to myself what I want from a poem, maybe before I even solicit feedback from anyone. So I've, I've been taking fewer workshops, first of all. Um, and yeah, just like giving myself permission to not take all the feedback, even if it is from someone in a position of authority, someone I respect, um, listening to all of it, but sitting with it longer um, and prioritizing what I want because it's my poem. <laughs> yeah. I think something that you two are sort of touching on and I think like the broader sort of conversation around workshop is maybe just beginning to address is like, the way that um, like workshopping a single poem is such like a narrow sliver of an offering that 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 actually comes from a much like deeper and broader place right it, like it is reflective of you to a certain degree as a poet and like the thing that you're interested in which like you can't actually manage to do in a workshop right you can't like convey all of that you can't contextualize your poem enough um, and you know and, and like let's be frank some spaces like don't want that right are not interested in that and like it can be actively harmful to sort of put yourself out that way 
Um, and so like that first negotiation feels like really important to acknowledge like for myself. And I think for me, the way I gathered feedback, my journey of gathering feedback has like really changed dramatically. It always sort of, it started with places that I always trusted and felt seen. And so like, I was really open to that, like youth slam. And like, I think I've said it before, um, and like this uh, Jose Olivares said, like the open mic was the first workshop I ever had, right? Like saying something out loud to gather like people's responses is like a kind of workshop, right? Um, I think like sending, trying to get a hundred rejections in a year is also a kind of workshop. That's like probably not super healthy. <laughs> um, and I think like not good for everyone, but I did that and like, I learned a lot. Like I, I gathered some feedback. It was an important data point. Um, and I think now most lately, the way I've been thinking about workshop is like the sort of, it's like an exercise in audience maybe. Um, like having like a real clarity of understanding of like maybe not like exactly what the poem is doing or even like understanding like the highest aspirations for it, but like knowing who I want to write it towards um, and knowing the difference between who I'm writing it towards and who's in the workshop. Um, I think that has helped me um, be more uh, discerning about like what feedback is helpful and what feedback is not. Um, I think I've also just had the benefit of like the workshops I've been in recently. I've like been not really like line edity and more like this is what I'm seeing in the workshop. Like this is what I'm seeing happening in the poem, which like is helpful even if the person saying that is not who I'm reaching for um, in the poem. It's like, again, like a data point that is useful. It may not be the deciding thing, um, but it's still like useful. One shift I've noticed in myself in terms of the kind of feedback I'm more interested in, I, I'm finding myself more and more interested in emotional response, which I feel like was not a part of my academic workshops in any way, but it's a big part of the workshops I've gathered around myself from beloveds like the two of you and and others in my life who I trust who I enjoy sharing work with and like where the main undercurrent question is more of like did this connect with you like did this make you feel anything <laughs> as opposed to like did this impress you with how like smart it seemed which is like more of like sort of what I was going for in my earlier days it was more like does this seem smart <laughs> was like the subtext of my question uh, early on. And now I'm, I'm much more interested in like, did, like, did this, can, did, did anything spark here? <laughs> I, th I think um, in, the, in the same way, when I was younger, or, or just when I was just starting to, you know, be in the poetry world and doing workshops, I wanted to like, my question was always like, is this working? Which is like saying like, girl, is this, is this, po is this poem smart enough? Like, is it is it good enough to be a poem? Um, and now that I no longer thinking of those things and uh, thinking about like, is this working? I'm more so concerned too, Gabby, with like the emotional response um, from people who I am soliciting feedback from. Um, I, st I still do like to know like, you know, does this line break make sense and like those kind of granular things but at large i'm really concerned with um is this making you shift in your skin or not like 
I need to know if this is going to be, if this is doing the emotional work that needs to be, that it, that it needs to be doing. Um, I will also say though, because I'm not writing poems, I'm having a hard time figuring out what kind of feedback I want um, and what's going to be, what's going to be in service of poems that I'm going to write one day because that, that can change right I can write in poems well when I write poems again you know whenever that happens um hopefully soon when that happens um I might not want emotional feedback right I might need to know like does this poem is this poem smart or not like is this poem intellectual or not like and to know if it's doing the actual work that needs to be that it needs to be doing and so um I don't know uh but I'm excited to know if that's going to shift and change I think every writer goes through a, a different phase of receiving feedback um, just because we're humans and we change day to day, so. Yeah. I look asking people look a feedback for at that point because I feel like I tend to just sort of give the kind of feedback that I want generally at a given time, but that's not really speaking the language of the other person that's just projecting my own desires onto them. So I, I do wish there was more of a, of that question being asked in a workshop, yeah. give others what they think they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like to like, I've been also thinking a lot about the question of like, is this working? Like, which is like maybe the most common question in like a workshop, right? And when you present your poem and like sort of the lack of specificity within that question and how it like ends up conflating so much. Um, and, and I have been thinking of like, maybe like what I'm asking for, especially in so far as like, I don't know. Um, I think I don't know if the room has the emotional response I want them to have not caring so much about that but like I think it also comes from a place of like especially I would ask that question I think more when I understood less about like how a sentence worked right or like how a line works or like um understanding like for like and I think like the more I've read just myself like and the more like sort of um formal and informal education I've had in poetry, like the more specific I can be in my question of like, is this working? And I can like, and therefore I'm like becoming, I think much more attuned to and orienting questions and like receiving feedback around like syntax, right? Like around like the effects of certain like um, technical elements of the poem, which I feel like can happen I feel much more comfortable in that realm during workshop when people are talking about like technical aspects, like as like a universal thing that I could say. Um, and so I think like the further I've gotten along, like the more interested I am in like having that conversation because I think like whether or not it's like having the emotional resonance like happens in like our email threads, right? <laughs> happens in like the, the, the conversations I have with myself and, and like my own beloveds. Um, that distinction feels really important to me. I love how we've started workshopping workshop. <laughs> I mean, I always think about like um, my teacher, um, Mary Jo Bing, like I think in the first workshop I had with her, um, well, it was mind blowing. Like she just said, I think I said it before to y'all, like, the point of workshop is to tell the, the writer how we're reading the poem. Like that's the entire point of a workshop. It's not really to, 
it is to workshop the poem, but it's not really to then like, critique and say what needs to be fixed. It's more so like, here's how we're reading this poem. And then she will go through everybody's poem and she'll go line by line how she's reading everything. And it's like, that for me was like mind blowing because we're so taught to think like workshop, I'm here to bring you this poem to tell me how to fix it. Versus no, I'm here to tell you, I'm here for this poem so y'all can tell me how you're reading it. And so if, if it's read differently than how I'm writing it, then I can know how to fix it, right? That's the, that's the trajectory I think of how workshop should be going. And I just, it's very rare that I get in workshops like that, where like we're talking about how I'm reading the poem versus talking about what needs to be fixed about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think like a workshop, I think that's also like a new revelation for me too. And I think like, like shout out to the Warren Wilson MFA program for sort of figuring this out, but like it's as much an exercise in collaborative close reading, right? Like that is the point of workshop much more than like, can you input a draft of a poem and at the end of workshop, like output like a more polished refined version of it um and like that process of like close reading it like also just like it, it's great because like that actually just makes you a better at crafting future poems for yourself right <laughs> which is like that feels like the higher order of like what workshops should be doing anyway amen speaking of warren wilson let's go over to tommy blount's conversation all right well let's jump in uh tommy you hail from detroit um uh like which i think of much like seattle as like sort of underrated city for it's like very rich literary tradition a city of like many poets that shaped me shout out to vivi francis matthew olsman nandi comer nadine marshall and so many others um i'm kind of interested in like your experience in uh, the poetry literary community in detroit like how you came into it what the scene sort of feels like there and then like how detroit as the city as well as your poetry family sort of shape and show up in your poems? <sighs> okay, so, all right. Um, yeah, Vivi, Vivi Francis is the beginning for me. I always call her my first uh, poetry teacher, even though, okay, so I didn't get serious about poetry, well, serious-ish, until I went to undergrad at Michigan State. And um, it was probably, it was in the, it was in my sophomore year. I had heard of, um, it was like a social studies class and we got this like cassette tape. This was like 98. So cassette tapes were still kind of floating around a little bit. Um, and so, you know, I had this really like trippy, dippy, hippie professor and the class was about the, the radical 60s. So, um, so we delved into like the black arts movement and there was this cassette and on the cassette they had all of these like sermons and um, uh, lectures and stuff. And then they also had artists from the black arts movement like the last poets were on there. And then Sonia Sanchez was on there. And that was the first time I heard her. And I said, what the hell is she doing? And it just, it just, she just locked me in. And I was like, I don't know what she's saying, but I know what she's saying, right? 
Um, Cause it was like the, it was like the, the, you know, her, her musical style. I swear I'm getting to Detroit. I swear. Um, but it was like her, you know, her musicality, you know, I understood that. Right. And then from there I went in. And so I just, I just started like gobbling up everything I could from Sonia Sanchez. And then it just blossomed out, just bloomed out from there. Um, and then I joined, um, there was a, um, there's a poetry, poetry organization there um, called the um, uh, Black Poet Society. And I think I was in the first group that started that at Michigan State, I think. Um, and um, yes, I did that. And then I started taking like little creative writing classes. And then in my senior year, I was like, okay, I'll take a poetry class. So then I took a poetry class and it was with Diane Wachowski. I had no idea who Diane Wachowski was. And I'm glad I didn't know who she was because I would have been freaked out. Um, and yeah, so like after, but that, like after that, I didn't know, um, like I was excited about poetry, but I didn't quite know where to go with it next. And um, so I would do like open mic and I would still be reading poetry. Um, and um, and then yeah, at one open mic, uh, the Broadside Poets uh, Theater, uh, run by uh, poet uh, Willie Williams, who's been around. Um, he's like a, he's like a what do you call it? Uh, one of the you know beacons of poetry in Detroit. And um, and yeah, so I read at the open mic. I sat down, minding my own business. And then this woman comes over. She just beelines over to my table. She sits down at my table and she stares at me like this. And she says, what are you doing with your poetry? And I was like, I don't know. And that was Vibey. And I was like, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 hmm. So she's like, hmm. So then, um, so yeah. So she's been in my life ever since then. Um, and uh, this was like uh, 2004, 2005. And she like stepped into my life at the right moment. Cause this is also when my, um, I was like going through a bunch of mess with like my father and he was passing um, and at the same time. And then here comes Vivi coming in. And she's like, she's like, okay, so um, I'm running, I'm running classes. I mean, you know, poetry classes out of my, um, out of my house. And so, um, so yeah, so like I, I went there and like Erica Foreman was sitting there um, um, and uh, another poet, Shahrazad Parrish was there, another poet, Con Davidson was there, another poet, David Blair was there. And um, yeah, and then so like, that was like the birth of like a bunch of friendships, family, um, um, in that house, in Vibe's house. Um, it's, it's where, of course, I met Matthew Oldsman. Um, it's where I met Jamal May. Um, it's where I met um, Will Copeland. And then, yeah, and then we just became like this little family. Um, yeah, and we really liked each other, which I think is important with when you have like friendships with like other poets, it's important that you actually like them and not, you know, not being friends with them just, you know, because they're 
poets, but you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, so like, yeah, th those friendships are like, yeah, like we've been friends ever since, like Nandi Comer, Erica Foreman, Francine J. Harris. Um, and it's also pretty cool that like Erica Foreman and Nandi and I we, and Francine, um, we all have books out this year. And so that was like a cool thing that happened. Um, and um, yeah, and Nandi and Erica and I, we've been like going back and forth. Like when we went uh, the process of putting our first books together, we were going back and forth with like little conversations and stuff like, oh my God, oh my God. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, I hope Nandi and Erica don't get mad at me for saying that, but yeah. So um, <laughs> um, yeah, and um, yeah. And so like Detroit, so I always say, um, when I think, I used to say I'm not a poet of place. Like I would deny, I was like, Detroit has no bearing on my work. What are you talking about? I'm my own person. Um, but then um, as I got older, I, I started thinking about, I'm like, oh wait, yeah, it does. Um, there are like obvious things, um, like, um, especially in my book, um, there are like these sort of, I, I call it a ghost mapping in the book. There are all of these um, Detroit and, and Metro Detroit surrounding area landmarks in the book that if you are familiar with Detroit or you're from Detroit and you see those, you, can, you, you see them. Um, so there's that localness to it. Um, but like, of course, like on a, um, on a sort of, um, national or global level, um, other people can access those too. So like the poem Palmer Park, um, uh, it has a, locally it has its own, um, resonance as like a queer gay, queer, black queer gay, um, place and neighborhood. Um, but then also, on a, you know, on the larger scale, you know, the, the term Palmer, it has the word palm in it. And so, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, Detroit has that effect. It, it, it has its thumbprint on me in that way. But I also think about it in terms of um, growing up being um, gay and, and um, black and gay in the city closeted, you know, um, for like the eighties and the nineties, you know, in the teens and the nineties. And, um, and even in adulthood, like part of adulthood, like um, the sort of limitations that a uh, place like Detroit, because Detroit is conservative. It's very black, but it's also very conservative um, in that sense, you know, where it's very like, heteronormative and it's like you you know you you work you get married you have a, get a house and you know you do all this you have kids and um and so there's a lot of that kind of um you know there's there's that kind of moral um tension that exists and st structure that exists so that people are in the closet you know married men are in the closet and all this other stuff and 
Um, so that, all of that stuff um, enters into my work too. It's the, the sort of unsavory stuff. Um, so like there's the landscape of Detroit. I was talking about those landmarks, but there's also, if you're black and queer, there's another landscape in the city um, that those places, they shift and they mean something else. Uh, depending on who you are, so. You mentioned the first book um, mm -hmm. and the, the journey to the first book is different for everyone and there's no right way, of course, but one of the many things that stands out to me about your first book, Fantasia for the Man in Blue, is how long people were anticipating it and how evident it is that you didn't rush the process it seems like you took the time you needed to get this book as right as you could get it. Mm -hmm. And the result is really astounding to me. Like it's mm -hmm. really rare for me to encounter a poetry collection that feels this meticulously wrought at the line level and this expansive and deep into its subject matter. And so I'm wondering how long this first book was in the works <laughs> and... <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and what gave you the resolve not to rush it? You mentioned your writing community that started in Vivi's house and mm -hmm. that might be a part of this, but mm -hmm. I'd love to just hear more about, yeah, this process of the first book. Yeah. First, I didn't know that people were waiting for the book. I didn't know that at all. Um, <laughs> see, it makes me giggle. Um, um, yeah, I've been like, ooh, yeah. I've been writing these poems probably since I met Vibe. Well, some of the, well, a couple of them um, are that old. Um, and I can't say that I was ever, that I had ever thought that I was writing a book. I always thought that I was just writing poems. I know everybody says that, but it's true. I was just writing poems um, and trying things and like trying to make, um, and just trying to make art. Um, yeah, I was just, you know, poem, one poem at a time, one poem at a time. And, um, and I've been lucky. Um, because I have had like most of my, I mean, even though I went to MFA, it, it, but it was Warren Wilson, which is like the whole, the whole model is like an apprenticeship model, um, a mentorship model, I should say. And so like, um, yeah, I don't know. I've just been lucky to have like all of these fantastic mentors who like kept blowing my mind and saying, oh, no, 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 you don't know poetry. You know, every time I think I would get some, oh, no, 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 you don't know, no, 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 no. There's this too. And so I think that that, um, that um, expansiveness, knowing that, knowing that I can't ever know everything about poetry um, allowed me the room and time and all of these years to play and and 
also live my own life, right? Um, I'm 40, how old am I? That's how old I am, because I don't know how old. I think I'm 41. I'm 41, yes, I'm 41. Um, and like, just, uh, yeah, it allowed me to live, live my life, live that time, which I think is very important um, when working on in art is to like live um, whatever that means for you. And um, yeah. Um, yeah, I was never, I was never aiming for a book. It wasn't until um, Martha, okay, so Martha Rhodes um, was one of my uh, mentors at, at Warren Wilson. And after I graduated, um, well, maybe a year after, I went to Breadloaf and Martha, and Martha said, she said, I know you have a book. I know you have a book. I said, Martha, I do not have a book. She's like, okay, okay, all right, okay, okay. Um, so then, you know, I went along, I, I'm, you know, writing little poems. And then Ross White and Matthew Oldsman were like, hey, don't you wanna, don't you wanna do a little chat book, you know? I was like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll try that, you know. Um, and I'm thrilled that I did the chat book. Um, I think it was that. I mean, without that, I would not have had the um, inkling to think that I could do a like a full length. Um, and it allowed me to work out um, some ideas on like a smaller in a smaller um, uh, format. Um, but yeah, um, so that happened. And then, um, yeah, and then Martha Rhodes cornered me at AWP in a bar and she said, look, she said, look, okay, this is what we're gonna do. <laughs> she told me, and I can never say no to Martha Rhodes. I can never say like, yeah, like any of my, my uh, mentors, Gabrielle Cavacaresti, Avan Jordan, um, C. Dale Young, any of them ask me anything, I can't say no. So, um, cause they just, they just mean everything to me. Um, and, um, and so Martha's like, look, okay. So this is what, this is what we're gonna do. Okay, why don't we do like a little timetable? We'll do a little schedule, okay? We'll say, let's, we'll, we'll say, okay, let's, let's say this deadline, this will be a very soft deadline. And we'll see what you have. Just, you know, just, just, just try it out, you know. And that, that pressure taught me that I do well under pressure, apparently. I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was the, all the pressure, but like, um, maybe it's because I had been thinking about poems for all of these years, um, thinking about a lot of things and reading a lot of other collections and um, but I was, um, I was riding home from work one day and, um, and I saw the book. I just saw it laid out like that. I know people hate that. I know. And I, I'm always embarrassed to say that. I'm always so embarrassed to say that, but 
I saw the I saw the structure of the book laid out like that. Um, um, and I think I don't think it. Hmm. I think I was like I was saying. I think I was thinking about the book already. Um, but I needed something to like say. Okay, go. You know. Um, yeah. I don't know about everybody else, but I love the idea of you just like in your car and then suddenly like you having to order like that's like when people talk about muses, like I think of things like that, like in an instant where things come to you and it's like, how did I, how did I get there? And you just don't know yeah. how you got there, but you're so glad mm-hmm. you got there. So I feel like mm-hmm. that's, I mean, we all have those moments in poetry, but mm-hmm. we don't want to always say what it is. Cause it's, yeah. it does sound really lofty and really like, it does. Oh, come on. Yeah. Um, and the, Yeah. And the thing is, and the thing is now, um, like when I was um, like revising the book and stuff, um, I started noticing things. I'm like, oh, wait, there's, there was this. And oh yeah, there was this, you know, it's like a forensics kind <laughs> of thing that's happening now. It's like, oh yeah, that's right. There was this. And then there was this, you know? Yeah. So sorry, Luther, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. What about you? I'm just here to help. <laughs> um... <laughs> Um, so <clears throat> I really admire the book's order. Um, it sets us up with the first poem, right? Fantasia for the Man in Blue, which I take to be about permission and restriction. And then moves from that to Americanness in section one, wildness or giving into wildness in section two, construction of self in section three, and then a type of showmanship in the last section, which ends with another Fantasia for the Man in Blue that I think is a direct response to the first poem. So can you talk about the order of the book and how we well, just talked about that. So that's pretty much it. But more really um, thinking oh. about, yeah, thinking about um, the order, um, how you then began revising that it's a moment of getting the order of the book and also talk about really um, what other books kind of help you think about order. Mm-hmm. Wow, I like your, I like your take on the book. <laughs> So probably what I'm about to say is probably not going to sound, you know, <laughs> that's good. Um, yeah. So, okay. So I'm a weird. Um, so remember how I was saying, oh yeah, there was, you know, I, that, oh yeah, I was in the car, but then, but then like I started realizing, oh yeah, there was this thing and there was this thing. So there were structures that I stole from, from other places. Um, one of the original, one of the original epigraphs for the book, there was, there was originally two. Um, and the second one was um, Stephen, uh, Stephen Sondheim epigraph. Um, and Martha was like, maybe pick one. <laughs> but um, but um, Stephen Sondheim's A Little Night Music, um, uh, is very, um, I know it's so weird. It's very, um, it's very much influential to the structure of the book. And, um, so like in A Little Night Music, there is this, um, this, this quintet that, um, okay. Yeah. So it's just like, it's just like whole, 
tangled love triangle. It's like this whole complicated storyline where like the there's a husband, there's a wife, and she's like young, and it's kind of it's kind of yeah, it's kind of creepy too. Um, the, but the 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 wife falls for the husband's son, and the husband falls in love with another woman, and it's all this crazy. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's all this craziness. But then, um, but then, like every now and then, there's this quintet um, of singers, and um, they begin the musical, and they pop in every now and then. And when they come in, they're singing, they're singing about their own little story and entangled relationship that has nothing to do with the rest of the musical. And, um, but it does have something to do with the rest of the musical. They sort of, um, they create like a, um, almost like a Greek chorus. They kind of come in and they, they'll set a tone for the scene or they'll, echo what's happening in the scene um, and inform it somehow. And so that's, that's kind of the way that I see the, um, the quartet of uh, Fantasia for the Man in Blue poems. They sort, of, um, they sort of come in and they hit a note and, um, and the poems around them sort of rise to that note or they subvert that note somehow. Um, and with that said, my approach to each section was um, they're actually their own, uh, gosh, I sound ridiculous. They're actually their own little books, kind of, sort of. Um, and the approach to each section is a little different. Um, so yeah, so like that first section, um, well, the first poem is actually an overture of sorts too. Um, it hits on all of these, um, these, uh, these different um, motifs and registers that are in the rest of the book. So like, you know, Americana, like you were saying, Luther, American, you know, Americanist, um, and um, the, the notion of like, um, um, uh, I forgot the word I was going to say, um, but it hits on all of these different sort of sexual violences, I should say, um, and consent um desire um who has permission over a body and who who you know who doesn't um uh the relationship between um uh, performer and audience um uh, specifically um how power gets exchanged and warped and and um usurped or um um yeah and yeah, and what it looks like when um, one is wrestling with the narrative around their their self and their body, and yeah, all that stuff. So that's like the common. That's like a real common thing that's happening in the book. But yeah, the book's all over the place, though. <laughs> <laughs> Which was intentional because, like, one of the things that I um, when I was uh, working with Mark that I loved about working with Martha. Um, one of the things that I struggle with is like, um, 
personally too, I'm getting better at this though, is making myself smaller, trying to make myself smaller, you know? Um, and so this book was my, well, what if, what if you took up a lot of space and earned it? And um, what would that look like, you know? And I think I was thinking about um, Robin Cost Lewis too. Um, uh, and she, I think it was a commonplace interview where she was talking about, um, she was talking about the uh, sort of ecological, um, ecological uh, price of having a big book. And she said something like, and if you're gonna use all of those trees to make a book, then you better make damn sure it's a good, you know, it's, it's earning that, those pages. And so I think that that was echoing in my head too. Um, there's even echoes of that title in my book. So, you know, um, that's a little cheat I did, but yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, Sia Rodman is a, she's an influence over this book too. There's a lot of influences on this book. Um, yeah, I think that's all I wanted to say. I'll shut up now. <laughs> Can I ask Tommy, cause you brought up like the musical structure, the Sondheim, like, uh -huh. There's so much music in your book, like obviously uh -huh. in the poems themselves. Uh -huh. um, and like, I love this idea of like sort of interacting, like you're interacting with art in the book and uh -huh. obviously what's not obvious uh, in, except in your sort of explanation here is like the interaction with the musical itself, which is related to, to like performer and audience. I guess like, I guess I'm just curious, like how music, like how, like how influential and like what role uh -huh. music plays for you and like uh -huh. making the poems, like in making the book, just like the interplay between your art and music. Mm -hmm. As you um, wear your Janet Jackson. Shirt. I know, she's in the book too. People don't notice her, but she's in the book. Um, Cause Rhythm Nation was also, yeah. Um, yeah, so oh, I always have trouble with music, answering questions about music um, because I, I always see music as being um, a more pragmatic thing. Like I, I, I see it as within the poems, I see it as, um, as a kind of means of helping that speaker navigate that moment, trying to give them what they need to sort of um, sing their way through that moment. Sometimes it fails. Um, which is also wonderful um, and thrilling. Um, yeah. Um, and then I'm also thinking about, I also think about music and I'm gonna, I'm gonna narrow this down a bit too in terms of like sonics um, because I'm always, you know, again, I'm, I, I tend to go towards a cinematic leaning with this, but I'm always thinking about um, um, sort of soundtracks, I guess. Oh, that's not the right word. Um, but like the sonics are, are not just there to make it, uh, uh, what's the worst that word, dolorous or, you know, pleasing to the ear. 
it's not there for that. It's usually there to sort of um, um, work against the information that's happening in the poem or work with the information that's happening in the poem or foreshadow something that's coming. Um, so for me, yeah, so for me, music is more of a pragmatic thing than, um, than just, I should say than just a music or sort of um, melodious thing, which I think is good too. See, I don't wanna be prescriptive because, you know, um, because I love like, you know, <clears throat> um, I know Plath has issues a little bit, but I love, I love daddy. I love that poem. I love, um, I love the 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 cutesiness of the sounds, the coos and the ooh ooh oohs and ooh ooh oohs, and then like, but it's like all of this like gruesomeness and horribleness that's happening in the poem. So that's a good. That's that's what I aim for when we talk. When I'm talking about music, I want it to like actually do something um, with the information in the poem. What sort of bird destroys itself the way this one does against the windows of this parking structure stairwell? I'm too shaken to go anywhere near it and its argument for desperation. I know if I were a different sort of man, I'd yank off my shirt, fling the thing out into the night to the doorway it isn't able to find. The doorway I found after leaving a man's condo, a stranger for whose face my thumb swiped the phone screen. I couldn't stay long enough to learn his real name because I lied about the way I looked. I wasn't the man we both needed tonight. So here I am, swiping my finger across my shirt's top button, not really wanting to unwing its halves my breasts prominent enough to be suckled, not like a man's. And the bird, no question, is beautiful when its beak breaks against the glass. Not the bird, really, but its blood-blind serenade to the bird on the other side of the window returning every gesture that is not really a bird, just a trick of light and glass. I wet my lips and blow, yet nothing comes out. Thank you, Tommy. I love this poem so much. Um, when I first read it, I wept. Um, oh. Uh, and then because I'm in grad school, I'm actually in Warren Wilson. Uh, I wrote oh. I wrote an annotation about it. About oh, the, wow. Okay, now I'm going to cry. <laughs> oh, jeez. About the oh. turn in the poem in particular. And, uh, but I want to ask you about looking and image making, uh -huh. um, which the whole book is really concerned about, but maybe we can look at this poem as like the launching point for it. Uh -huh. um, and the poem starts with the speaker looking at a bird, bird um, and then the speaker like goes on to, and tells about like looking for a hookup, um, swiping a phone, confessing, quote, I lied about the way I looked, 
only for the poem then to return back to the image of the bird, mm-hmm. uh, which is brutalizing itself, not knowing that the image of the bird it's looking at is a reflection of itself. Mm-hmm. So I guess um, from a craft perspective, I'm curious and like in writing the, these poems, like mm-hmm. what the difference is between looking and image making mm-hmm. it, and then like how that relates to desire, like where desire might fit in in relation to those things. Mm. Wow, that's a, that's, a, <laughs> that's a big question. What's the difference between looking and image? Well, um, so yeah, so I've been thinking a lot about this word looking, obviously. Because um, when I think of looking, looking has so many, ugh, it's so loaded. Um, because there's, um, there's looking as, as witness. And looking often, looking often implies um, that there is that there is an audience, that there is an actor, willing or unwillingly, um, in the situation. Um, and then, and then also, there's like. Um, like I was talking about earlier about um, there being like narrative that is like up for grabs in a situation like that when we're talking about looking um, because the um, spectator is coming with an expectation and the actor or whoever is being watched um, has their expectations too. Um, yeah, and so for me, so for me, looking is a more, it's a more active thing, whereas image, image is a, for me, image is a completely different kind of box. Um, for me, image has to do with like, um, image has to do with, um, huh. image has to do with like, a kind of approximation of truth. Um, okay, I'll word it this way. So one of the, I talked about this in an interview. One, there's a, um, see, I always have to go towards film. There is a, um, um, there's an article on, um, I think it's Vulture. And they they're, they talk about like um, this television set, um, the television sets, and how they have like this preset option where um, they call it image smoothing, where everything looks like like it's in real time, like everything looks like a soap opera, and um, and they're saying how you know that that phenomena sort of swipes. Um, wipes away and erases um, any sort of um, intention that filmmakers have or, you know, like they're shooting, like films are shot with certain, you know, film direct- directors they like for um, their movies to be shown a certain way. And so this technology has just wiped everything away and erased it all. Um, so there's like, so with image, there's like this there's like this fine line that I try to sort of uh, 
sort of toggle. Um, I don't want that hyper-realism of the image smoothing. I want, um, I want that other thing, that kind of approximation or it's some uh, director's approximation of reality that, um, yeah. Cause to me, that's, that's like the real, that's like truer than anything to me. It's like that kind of subjective. Um, so anyway, so in that poem, um, um, that's how image is working in that poem for me. Um, well, one of the ways we can look at it is um, there is that, that sort of, um, that sort of uh, approximation of, of the truth, like the bird is seeing its reflection in the, in the glass, like it's seeing a version of itself um, in the glass. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know if I answered your question though. Well, I think- Say more. I, I'm also curious like where, um, where desire in particular maybe mm. Relation to that, because I'm also thinking about, um, you know, if we're thinking about the turns as it relates to looking too, right? There are these really big gestures of looking away from that first image and then like looking back to that image, which are themselves like it feels to me like two different voltas, right? Turning away and turning mm -hmm. back, um, which also feels related to uh, desire. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I'm just curious if you see it, if you see those things connected at all. Um, yeah, I, mm, I can't say that I do. Um, I know that when I, when I am, so, okay. So when I'm writing about desire and in that poem, I'm thinking about, um, I'm really getting at um, sort of conversations around um, beauty in like a larger sort of framework. Um, not necessarily pinpointing what beauty is, but, um, but sort of troubling an idea or an ideal of, um, of something. Mm -hmm. And that to me is desire too. It's like, um, it's like, sort of grieving over something that you've never had before, um, which to me is also beauty is like an ideal. It's like, um, I want to be in that thing or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and that, I think that totally makes sense. I think it, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so we, of course, cannot ignore the elephant in the room, and that is the color blue, right? I love how in this book, uh, blue transforms into so many things, while at the same time remains the color. Blue represents cops, feeling and atmosphere, clothing, weather and so so much more 
transforms so much that at times the color can also become numbing but because the book itself is so masterful and because you're so masterful at writing these poems you don't allow blue to become numbing it shifts and changes with every poem and it keeps vibrating in that sense but I want to know where did your obsession with blue actually come from (laughs) blue is my favorite color Um, yeah, see, that's one of those, that's one of those things that, um, that I kind of just saw, like when I was just writing poems, um, I just used blue a lot. Um, and, um, and so when I was thinking about, when I was thinking about the collection, um, as a Fantasia, um, I was like, okay, this can be one of those, one of the many pathways through the, the book. Um, you know, as you said, there's, um, you know, there's blue as a, as a mood. Um, there's also, you know, uh, the men in blue, which are, you know, the porn, porn actors. And then there's Luther Vandross, who's the, the man in, in blues, rhythm and blues. Um, so yeah, so there was, there was that idea. I wish I could say I wish I could say it was a you know a, a, a Van Gogh uh, or something um, <laughs> that it came from that you know um, I don't know I don't know what it is I was worried about and I was worried about like you were saying um, the sort of this the uh, blue appearing so much I was worried about that because um, there are a lot of books that have you know blue in their title and stuff and. Um, um, yeah, that was one of my fears. Um, but then again, that's like, that's kind of what I like to do in poems. It's sort of, um, um, I like to revision things. Um, I don't know what that's about, but I like to keep revisiting something and seeing how I can move in it again. Um, yeah, how it can re-enter into it again. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, blue has just always been, yeah, it's my favorite color. It's, it's, yeah. And the book, and the book in the end is, um, a kind of fractured self-portrait Sure, I probably shouldn't. I probably shouldn't tell people that, but I'm pretty sure they figured it out. It's a sort of like mosaic self-portraiture of, um, of me. So yeah, I just want it. Yeah, I just want it blue on the title. That's all. <laughs> you mentioned the. Oh. Uh mosaic self-portraiture which makes me think of this incredible cover image for the book mm-hmm. it's so striking and it does feel like a like a fractured kaleidoscopic portrait of a face but the edges are so liquid mm-hmm. as opposed to like a kaleidoscope thinking of like very sharp edges and just going with the idea of fantasia and dreams. It's just, it's an incredible cover image. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about this painting? Yes, Um, my favorite story to tell. 
So, <laughs> um, so the artist is, is Peter Williams and the painting is actually in uh, the Detroit Institute of Arts. And um, let's see if I can remember the story right. So initially the, uh, the museum approached uh, Peter Williams um, to be a part of this, um, it was like a special exhibition that was, um, I think it focused on, no, wait, it didn't focus on, it was a special exhibition. And, um, and they wanted, and they wanted to display the, all the artists work in like one place. I'm sure someone's going to correct me when they hear this. Um, but what I do remember is that, uh, Peter Williams wanted his painting, um, to be placed beside this, like, um, it's in the, I think it's, uh, oh, I forgot the name of that gallery, but it, he wanted it placed next to this painting of this old Dutch family because he was trying to um, uh, bring attention to like the, the Dutch's role in slave, or slave trade and stuff, uh, which I thought was pretty badass. I think Peter Williams is badass. Um, and so anyways, so, um, I first encountered, I can't, I can't remember when I first encountered it. It had to have been, it had to have been a few years ago. Um, but every time I go to the Detroit Institute of Arts, which is often, um, well, not now, but um, I'm never looking for that painting. I, I can't, like, if I go and try and find it, I can't find it. I always stumble on it and they have it, now they have it tucked in this corner so that when you walk into the gallery and you turn left, it's like there, it's like a big old face. Um, and yeah, that pain just always like startled me and like made me jump and stuff. Um, and then um, I was approached uh, two years ago, it's been, two, yeah, two years ago um, by the Detroit Institute of Arts to um, participate in this program called I always screw up the name. I think it's Artist Poetry, Poetry is Art. I think that's the name of it. Um, program where they invited uh, poets from Detroit to come in and, um, you know, pick a painting, write a poem about it, you know. And so I knew, like, I didn't, I didn't even have to look. I knew exactly what I was going for. I like, I, I knew, I was like, I have to, I have to, like, I have to, exercise this painting you know, out of my, you know, well, not, you know, not exercise it because I love that painting, but, um, but like, I, I had to like, I don't know, I had to like hold it somehow, um, which is how I feel about a lot of art. Like I want to just take it home with me, like, you know, theater and dance and stuff. You just want to take it home with you. Um, and, um, and so I started, uh, Research and so the title of the painting is Portrait of Christopher D. Fisher, Forthright Skinhead. And um, and so I researched, I researched who that was. He was a um, he was the leader of this uh skinhead group who um 
you know, in the early 90s, when after this was after Rodney King was beaten um, and uh, around the LA riots. And this, yeah, this leader of the skinhead group, he wanted to, um, he wanted to assassinate Rodney King. He wanted to assassinate uh, Al Sharpton, you know, all those, you know, uh, Jesse Jackson, you know. Um, and what happened was, I think it was an FBI um, undercover agent or something. There was an undercover agent that infiltrated the group and uh, they found out that they were plotting to bomb a church in California and they foiled that plan and thank goodness. And, um, and yeah, and so all these news stories started coming out um, uh, while I was looking, I looked for the news stories and they all, you know, they did the, the thing where they infantilized the white, the white man, they called him boy. Um, it was a choir boy and all, he was quiet and da, 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 da. Um, yeah. And it just, so that was that part, right? That part kind of, um, pissed me off, but then, um, but then as the, as I kept like visiting the painting and thinking about the painting, um, and thinking about like my role in um, in in celebrating this figure, this name, um, who I can't I can't find a picture of him anywhere. I, I can't. I've tried. I can't find a picture of this man. Um, but my role in like coming to visit this painting, and I was thinking about like the size of it, and like wow, how much time and energy Peter Williams spent in this painting um, depicting this depicting this figure bringing attention to this 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 name this figure while at the same time taking vengeance upon this figure it was a very complicated thing to me like there was a there was a bit of like um, there's a bit of like celebration there worship but also, uh, rage and yeah, I don't know. It was, it's just, it, it's, it's just a painting that just fills me with so many questions and like makes me uneasy. It makes me uneasy about myself. And like, I, so I, you know, so, you know, I'm thinking about, wow, right. Um, as a gay black man, how have I, um, participated in this sort of infantilization of white men, right? Um, and how I have, I know I have, um, tried to kowtow to, you know, a white man. And what does that mean historically? And what does that mean historically when we're in bed together? And um, yeah, and so that painting brought all of that out of me. And then See, I'm a bunch of, I'm, it's a bunch of muchness. I'm so sorry, it's a bunch of muchness. But then um, I found this, um, there's this, uh, this scholar uh, uh, who teaches at University of Leeds, his name is Manuel Barcia. Um, and he uh, delivered a paper on a, um, on 
a slave ship called the Aragante. And I was Googling, see, and because I had heard stories. So this was an intentional thing with this poem. So I had, you know, I've always heard stories about um, uh, white cannibalism and like uh, in slavery. I had heard stories, but I'd never seen anything. And um, so I Googled white cannibalism and this, and, um, and Manuel Garcia popped up and it was, it's an audio recording of like this paper he delivered at University of Leeds. And it's a case where, um, um, where the ship was, let's see if I can get it right. The ship was intercepted and captured by another ship called the HMS Snake. And when they captured, when they captured the, the they captured the ship, there were um, 300 enslaved Africans on board. And um, I forgot how many died, but the ones that survived were like in really bad shape. I mean, you know, worse than, I know that's horrible to say, but worse than worse, right? Um, and so, the, but the thing that like fascinated me about this was that there was um, um, an accus there was a, there was um, you know many of the people that were enslaved on the on the boat they were saying that um, hey these people were like eating they ate this 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 man they ate him they and um, and. Specifically, the children, there were children that saw it happen. So, um, so the children were, I guess the children were able to like go above deck um, to like, um, you know, do some sort of labor for the crew and stuff. And, um, um, and so the children saw um, the crew basically, this is, gruesome i'm sorry this is so gruesome but they basically um saw him saw him mutilate um this man and eat him eat his heart and then they um they said that they chopped they fed him to the um enslaved people in the whole of the ship um and so there was a big court case about it and um oh i'm getting upset talking about it there was a court case about it and um, and the children, oh God, it's the kids. The children, um, uh, they had to, they testified and said what they saw and no one believed them. They didn't think that their testimony was good. And these were the kids that saw, actually saw it happen. Um, and then they, um, they got the testimony of the other people who were down in the, the hold of the ship um who said oh no we didn't see anything or um um or no yeah they said that they didn't see anything or something like that something like that anyway the the men got away and um the children were just traumatized and just out here um yeah so all of that <laughs> essentially um like um the collision of like history and like um desire and like how I move in the world, all of that sort of just, yeah, hit me all at once. 
And so that poem came fast. That was like one of the fastest poems I've written. So that poem came fast. Um, My God, Lick Him Clean, yeah. Which is after that painting. Oh God, I'm rambling. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that was wonderful. I think it really does say a lot about the book itself and how um, the book itself does a lot of um, um, a lot of uh, mixing of celebration and also a bit of anger, right? And even in every single poem, is a mixture of both in those ways. And so I think that's that makes a lot of sense for mm-hmm. sure for me. Yeah, because I'm always. Um, this is why I always say I'm not a good poet because I always hear. Um, I always hear poets say, oh yeah, I'm always, I'm always um, after a question that I'm answering in the poem. And I'm like, mm, I don't have the answers. I go to poetry to like, just question things and like, um, and tease them out. Cause I think that, I don't know. I think that there, I mean, there is a solution there in the, by the poem existing itself, like the poem is existence is, is the answer, I think. Um, but yeah, I'm not like interested in like doling out an answer in the poem, if that makes sense. Fantasia for the man in blue. It's the great blue hero, elephant trunk hung, chewing the set and every man in it like the big star, a convincing replica in the distance video promises. He flashes before he flashes his long nightstick at hustlers and car thieves who know I want as much as you do now, touching yourself pretending the man in blue would bend over backwards to protect you from the boredom of your unremarkable penis. You get off on this, even when it isn't on screen in front of you, all in your head. Let's say you're a criminal. You fit the description. You did everything of which you are accused. Now, say there's a deal on the table, then imagine that you are on the table. And like evidence, a bargain, if you let him, he swallows you, promises to forget the whole thing. Say you let him cuff you, every address ending in sir, the way your father taught you. Tommy for brightening our quarantines with your electric mind. Talking to you felt like getting to roam a really amazing museum for a while and I've been missing museums so thank you. To our beloved listeners thank you for listening and sharing the show around. We appreciate from the bottoms of our hearts each and every five-star review, each and every tweet and letter you send our way. If you haven't rated or reviewed The Poet Salon yet, you should definitely do that. Studies have shown that giving The Poet Salon a five-star rating is likely to result in clearer skin and a more joyful experience of life overall. So do it for you, boo. 
Also, if you're on Twitter, don't forget to follow us at Poet Salon Pod and send on your horse photos and your weirdest dream journal entries to the Poet Salon Pod at gmail.com. See ya. Next Adios, time. amigos. Do it for you. Do it for you. Wally Wally Uchi Bang Bang While the world is falling We can maintain Folding origami Making crane cranes Got a thousand wishes on my brain brain I put salt in the water When I'm cooking up the pasta Trying to keep me quiet But you know it's gonna cost ya Cause I cook them proper Redder than a lobster Go make bait But my mama was a mobster You wanna this gonna show you these hands gonna take on these streets gonna show you who's man's cause my crew mob steady feddy and spaghetti feddy and spaghetti feddy in the